Good to be here. Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor. Thank you for coming. And uh, I hope you're praying for us in, you know, from Canada. And we've got some problems down south of the border. <laughs> all right? and so it's not easy to be an American these days. You know, a U.S. citizen is, uh, we're not the most popular people in the world right now. And so our election is very challenging. So uh, the whole world is looking at our lunacy and uh, I, just keep, I, keep, I just keep remembering, okay, God said, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, you know, Cyrus, my servant. And, you know, God was moving through history, through this, the craziness of world affairs in that time. And he's somehow moving and shaping the world for his glory, you know, in ways that, you know, we don't understand. And, I mean, the only king that will endure is his. Uh, and it's sure not going to be the U.S. that's going to endure, so... Thank you. So you should have all received a packet, right? So, you, you know, pull out these notes, and I'll give you a handle. We're going to go the next, you know, day, uh, day and a half. And you should have all gotten a, three books, right, when you came in, a, a book, a workbook, and a daily office book. I'm going to ask that you bring that tomorrow, you know, through the day, okay, lo- along with your notes, because we'll, we'll work with that a little bit tomorrow. And, uh, and so really our, our goal for our time uh, together is uh, I really have two goals. One is – you know, is your formation, your own journey with Jesus, because everything flows out of us, right, and where we are in our own walk with God. So, you know, we're all on a journey with Jesus just personally, and my hope and prayer is that God will use our time to to move you, uh, your next step on what he has for you in your journey, just, you know, personally, and it'll be a blessing and a gift. And then secondly would be that there'll be some equipping here uh, to bring back to your church. I have a second objective that first impact you, uh, and then secondly the church. Uh, so really, we're going to be going on two levels here. But each of the sessions uh, in particular, we're going to, it's going to be experiential learning. We're big believers in theology has to be experienced, has to be lived out. And, and, uh, and so each session, we're going to do something experiential, uh, especially tomorrow morning, you know, most of the morning. Uh, and so we're going to do really four different sessions. It was t- tonight, I'm going to kind of tell my story, give an overview. And, and then we're going to do what we call one of our skills uh, called Explore the Iceberg, and, and we'll end with that. And uh, then tomorrow, uh, we're going to do a session called uh, Leadership That Goes Back to Go Forward. And this whole principle of uh, as we move forward in God, we've got to deal with things from our past that hinder us and hold us back. And uh, so we're going to build a genogram of your families going back three, four generations. And then we're going to talk about how that impacts your own walk with God, your relationships. But then more, you know, you know secondly, and more really significantly, is how does this affect the way we lead our churches and how we do discipleship in our churches. So we're going to unpack that. Hopefully, hopefully we're going to have a lot of, you know, we're a small enough group that we can have interaction. Lots of Q&A and back and forth, which would be great. And then in the afternoon, uh, we're going to talk about slowing down uh, for Sabbath and loving union with Jesus and what that's about. And we're going to really get, get into Sabbath. We'll have a good discussion about, you know, how do we have a same life, you know, and, and rhythm in a, in a role, in a position where there isn't any rhythm. It's just, trim, just coming at us constantly. Uh, but how do we somehow live a rhythmic life, uh, which we model then for our churches, and then we somehow slow down our churches so they're actually engaging Jesus uh, as, as the center and anchor of their lives. Uh, and then we'll just close with talking about now how, how, you know, how to actually do, how, how would you bring this to your church? And uh, as you'll hear, it's a very slow process, but what, would, what might that look like and, and what have we learned? So that'll be the four sessions, and I, and I hope we'll have lots of interaction along the way. All right, so uh, again, so, so I want session one, we're going to your notes here. I, I just want to just little intro here to, uh, you know, just what is EH leadership? And, and uh, I like to call it it's Jesus upside down strategy. And, um, 
You know, if some, any of you have been to any webinars we do, I, I do this little presentation of the global churches in deep trouble. And uh, it's really a global problem. It's not a North American problem. It's global. Uh, and uh, Barna recently did a study of the state of discipleship in the church. Uh, it, was a, it was a comprehensive study. It was, it was sponsored by the Navigators. And as you know, Navigators would be kind of like, you know, the parachurch ministry most focused on discipleship, you know, and since uh, World War II. But they are very aware that what they were doing is not working anymore. They've, they've actually come to my office, the national leadership. We have a major conversation. They, they recognize that the, the, the generation ago was doing – it was a different world and that what's needed today is, needs to be much more robust uh, than what we had because the culture is so antithetical to, to kingdom values. And uh, so this state of discipleship basically confirmed what we all know to be true, that there is a crisis in discipleship. And it reaffirmed the reveal study of Willow Creek from about eight years ago and other studies that have been done, uh, and that is that people are not being changed in our churches. Uh, and so here's a couple of findings from, from their study. One is that you know, only 1% of church leaders say churches are doing very well at discipling new and young believers. I mean, that is a very small percentage, that only 1% of them say, we're doing a great job, we feel really good about them, they come to Christ at our church, and they really get grounded and move forward in Christ. 99% said we're not doing. We don't. We're not doing a good job. We don't really know. We're not even sure what what to do at this point. Number two is that participation in discipleship activities is weak, as low as twenty percent in our churches. And then thirdly, the two most significant barriers are people are very busy, uh, don't have time, which is funny. Even retired people don't have time anymore, you know. And 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 there and there's, there's just there's not even a vision for it. There's kind of a, a lack of just commitment to my life needs to be on following Jesus. And I've got to get resource on how to do that as, as, a, as a regular Christian sitting in our churches. And so here's traditional discipleship. You meet Jesus, you attend the church, you get connected, serve, and grow, right? We just get them, get them in small groups, get them into midweek services, uh, get, them, get them using their gifts, you know, giving their gifts, hopefully giving money, and get them serving on mission trips or whatever. And our, our, our expectation is that if we get them doing these things, well, one, if you're like me, it's like, okay, uh, they're in. You know, they're going to stick uh, and they're going to grow in Christ by the kind of the being in the body and doing these three things. And and by God's grace, then we make an impact on the world as a church. And I, I want you to just notice that this small circle of impact. Uh, but that's our that's kind of our where I think most churches, most of us operate. And we've got small groups and classes and all kinds of things we do to help that box happen. But we're going to talk here today, the next, you know, today, and tomorrow about, I'm going to call it a, a transformative model. It, it's a countercultural model. It's a bit upside down. And that people meet Jesus, they attend a church. We want them in our local churches. We, we need community. But that we actually do deep beneath the surface transformation in people's lives. We actually do serious discipleship where they actually get changed. Um, and out of that, we make an impact on the world. That's significant. It's sustainable. It's long-term. And so I, I stand before you. So I am totally committed to mission to bringing people to Christ. It's been my life work. Is, you know, I, well, I want people to know the, the glory and the love of Jesus, the best news in the universe. Uh, but the question is, and how, how do we change people? And so we're talking here in these two days about discipleship for the sake of mission. And uh, it's, this is very messy. And I, what I like about this picture is I, I, I like the left, I like the foot. Because I don't know about you, but pastoring is like your foot's just in a mud mess. You know, it's just a mess. People's lives are a mess. And when you get in there, you almost... You almost rather not know, because if we just get together and sing and go home, it looks good, especially if you have a great worship team. But once you get in people's lives for the sake of formation, 
It's really messy. I mean, it is just messy. I don't know about up here in Canada, but it's a mess down south, all right, in, in New York. And, uh, and this has been my experience over three decades. It's just messy work, and it's slow, it's painful, it is hard. It's called discipleship. And uh, so, but we want, we want people, you know, to become a work of art, you know, Ephesians 2.10. So, again, we're going to talk about two levels here. One is a leadership level, and secondly is a church level. And, uh, and so over these 20-plus uh, years of EHS, much like Alpha for, for evangelism, how many of you do Alpha here? In, you know, we do Alpha at our church. You know, it's a great way of, one way of helping people come to Christ. And so really what EHS is, we've landed basically on two courses uh, that become like an Alpha, but it's, it's EHS for discipleship as an, as an introductory way to deep beneath the surface formation in people's lives that you build upon in the rest of your discipleship but uh, it's two eight-week courses it's a it's a wallop it's not what we do in our north american churches as you'll see uh and uh you can't do it if you don't begin living it in fact we would tell you if you're not living it don't do it because we don't need another program okay programs aren't changing anybody but changed lives change people and so that will be the and, and because the, the goal here again we want global impact we want to see people have to be so filled with Jesus that, that, that in, our, in our churches, that mission just, it's, it's, you, you're, you're, it can't help but happen. But as you know, to move people who are not deeply tied in with Jesus is very difficult. Mission is just minimal. So we're looking for an overflow of life in God and, and a church dynamic and health and joy level that mission is just happening uh, out of that church long term around the world. So uh, again, it's a, it's a centralized course, and these are the materials that you received coming in here. We'll refer to them along the way. That's the first course, the EHS course. So let me, let me go on. So let, let, me, let me just go move here to is Jesus' strategy to love the world. Let me just make a couple of comments here before I launch into my story. I have been in the Gospel of John in my morning prayer, quiet time, devotional life. I've been in the Gospel of John, I think, now for four years. You know how God just takes you somewhere, and you realize, like, God is just coming to you in, in, a, in a portion of Scripture or a a book, and I, I mean, God has just had me in John for a long time, just devotionally. And uh, what so struck me about the Gospel of John, like all the Gospels, is just the, the, the enormous amount of time Jesus invests in these 12, you know, and uh, including Judas. And then that John 17 high priestly prayer, the way that, he, the way that Jesus' strategy to reach the world, and, and I think when I finally got to John 17, was just, it's so striking because you, you can break that up into three basic sessions, John 17. You know, you, you know, first of all, God loves the world way more than we realize. And so what happens is it starts with verses 1 to 5. It, Jesus kind of prays for himself. It's, you know, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you've given me to do. It's all about him and the Father. You know, Father, glorify your Son. You know, I might glorify you. But it's about just him and the Father. Okay. Then verses 6 to 19, he prays for the 11 uh, that are left. And uh, he just prays for them. He doesn't pray for the world. He prays for the 11 disciples. And he says, very, he says very clearly, I, I, I am not praying for the world. It's in yellow. He says, I am not praying for the world. You think, I mean, Jesus, you're leaving. You better pray for the world. He says, I am not praying for the world. I am praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. And then thirdly, he prays for the global church. He prays for, you know, 20 to 26. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message. Because he knows that if these disciples don't get it right, the world's not going to get it right. The mission is not going to happen except it goes through these these 11 folks who are left. And he has banked the entire global mission on the discipleship of these 11. 
And if you've studied the whole, you know, the Gospels, you know that he spends more and more time with them. Uh, as time goes on, he gets closer to leaving earth, not less. And the fact that John 17 is, is so focused on these 11 to me is so incredible that that is his prayer at the end uh, speaks volumes. And uh, so, so, so here, here's the application very simply. You know, your life is the most important thing. I mean, I, you know, Jesus prays for himself. Like you, our lives in Christ is, is number one. That we, we are basically our walk with Jesus and that we are doing the work God's called us to do and we're being the people he's called us to be. Now, the, 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 the struggle of being a pastor and even people in our churches is, uh, you know, very often uh, our churches in, charge, in terms of life change and discipleship, our churches can often look good on the outside, but they're not very good on the inside. And you, some of you know the term a Potemkin village. It comes from a... a uh, a, a true story out of uh, Russia uh, in the uh, 1300s where, that's a, that's a, that's, I forget what it was, 1700s, 1800s, when Potem- General Potemkin, basically Catherine the Great was the empress and she, he wanted to impress her. So he, he basically created these fake villages. Russia was very poor. And so General Potemkin had them build these facades and he had all the people get in front of these villages and say, oh, you know, be all happy and singing and praising Catherine the Great. And then she'd sleep for the night. It was a thousand-mile journey. Then he'd move the people to the next village and have another fake village. But at what became part of English, you know, terminology was something called a Potemkin village, a fake village. And so often, I'll, I'll speak specifically to American megachurches. You're, you're not quite in Canada here in the same, you know, number-driven thing like we are in the U.S., on the same scale, but we have many mega churches in the U.S. that are Potemkin villages. They look phenomenal. They've got numbers and buildings and programs that'll just wow you to death. But underneath it, it's a Potemkin village because there's really there's not a lot there in terms of discipleship. There's not a lot there in terms of real transformation in people's lives. And it's very easy. It can, that can happen all size churches, not just large churches. Um, but. The, the great concern is that we've got lots of this happening in the churches. So, but then secondly, your few are the second most important. Just like Jesus focuses on the 11, that basically the question is, who are we, who are we investing in? Our, our discipleship of, of those few, we've got you know, a whole church, but who are we investing in? And um, you know, I, I like this little diagram here of discipleship. I, I think the modern church, the day discipleship is, let's get as many people in the room as we can uh, attending and connecting and serving. That, that's, our, that's our judgment of success. And then hopefully some people will get it and they'll go out and touch the world and get a few drops. Uh, that is definitely the model I was taught uh, as a pastor. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm into getting people in the room. I think it's great. But Jesus was very clear. It wasn't just masses of people that he was preaching to. He very much had his three. He had the 12. He had the 70. He had the 500. But he understood if he did the few, he'd have a massive impact long term in the world. Could you imagine if the 11 disciples that were left had written cheap gospels like in other words they just they didn't do a good job because they just weren't really walking with god the way they needed to and so they wrote kind of like 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 eight steps to a happy life type of thing with jesus or so, gospels that just didn't have the depth that they have today or could you imagine they just were too busy or just got sidetracked on really their walk with god we would not be here today i mean how much was at stake in those 11 getting it right and uh and jesus understood that this was going to come out of those you know peter james john and those remaining eight there was that much at stake uh and i think it's very it's a tremendous lesson here for us about 
how are we, where are we with our discipleship, and then third, the larger, the, the larger global church is the third most important. We are, con, you know, he is concerned for the world and those who are going to believe in him. And we are all, hopefully, I mean, as good Canadians, you're concerned for the world. Like, we are concerned for God's glory and church expanding around the world. Absolutely. Uh, that is, he loves the world. But we've got to have those, that order correct. And it's us, our walk with Jesus. It is our discipleship in our churches, in particular of the few, and then it is the wider world out there that we're reaching for Christ, but recognizing the, the limits that we have. And so let me just tell you a bit of my story and how I got into this whole thing called, we call EHS today and how it evolved. And it'll give you a bit of a context uh, for emotional healthy spirituality. In fact, before I begin, let me just ask, how many of you had a chance to read, at least maybe say even just half through emotionally healthy leader? Just raise your hands. Okay, good. A good party. Okay, good. Um, uh, okay, so you're, and how many of you have read something of emotionally spirituality? At least, just raise your hands. Okay, so you, okay. Others of you, why are you here? I, it's good you're here. You, you came. It's wonderful, but uh, that no, that's helpful. So, so I, I like to call my Christian life. I've had four conversions up to now. I'm sure I'll have another one before I go home to be with Jesus. You know, you know how God is full of surprises. You know, I, I came to Christ at 19 in college. Had a dramatic conversion. Uh, you know, 1976. It was a, you know, I was a classic you know, kid left church by 11 or 12, uh, Roman Catholic, Italian background, uh, had a dramatic, I, I, I was agnostic, you know, and a long haired party person. And, uh, I mean, God saved me, you know, and a, a woman witnessed to me at two, three in the morning in the middle of a party. I think I was high at the time. I don't know, but I just, she pulled me to church and there I was, you know, and, and, uh, I just had this, it was a, a, a dramatic God revelation of his grace and his love in the gospel. And, they would love me and the, that Jesus died for me and rose again. And there I was, you know, I, was, I didn't know the difference between the Old and New Testament when I became a Christian. That, that's how illiterate I was. And, uh, but I was, you know, on fire. And I got, I immediately got involved with uh, our Christian fellowship. Before I knew what I was leading it within, you know, 10 months. And I didn't know what I was doing. We got involved in Varsity Christian Fellowship. And Varsity provided a, a great foundation for us in discipleship. In everything from inductive Bible study to small groups to mission to the poor to racial reconciliation all the great values and you know and, and and i was a my wife and i like to say we were post she became a christian about the same time in the same college fellowship and we were poster child poster children evangelicals uh eventually taught high school english for a year graduated uh went to seminary and uh my family was originally from new york they'd moved to new jersey uh when i was in elementary school about a mile outside manhattan but I, but, I, but I, at the seminary, I felt God's called to go back to New York uh, and uh, spent a year in Central America learning Spanish and uh, then came and moved into Queens. And long story, and uh, ended up, I spoke Spanish at this point, was fluent in Spanish. Uh, we moved into the inner city. Uh, you know, I was explaining to uh, Tim, you know, it was a, you know, a real sense of calling to the poor in particular and marginalized. And with a vision to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers, uh, the gospel being the power of God, and, and uh, to bridge those barriers, Ephesians 2, Book of Acts. And uh, so in September 1987, we started a church called New Life Fellowship Church. And uh, to just give you a sense of the neighborhood of our church, uh, and uh, there's 123 nationalities in the neighborhood. Okay, so uh, our church has 75-plus countries in it. So it's very diverse. Uh it's in a, one of the poorer areas of uh, New York City, definitely the poorest area of Queens. 
Queens has two and a half million people. And so we have a large community development corporation along with the church. The church is about 1,500 adults. Then you've got a community development corporation with like a medical center and about 10 different programs after school, mentoring, um, you know, empowerment of the poor to help them get jobs, all kinds of things like that. Uh, we're actually the fourth largest food distribution center in the city of New York, to just give you a sense of our location. Um, and so uh, we went there with a vision to plant a, a great church that would plant other churches you know, among the poor uh, in a multiracial context. And so we had every racial tension uh, in the world was in our church, whether it was Palestinian Jews, not speak, you know, African-Americans and you know, whites, and then Caribbean Latinos versus you know, South American Latinos. And I mean, just you name it, we had the tension at our church. And uh, so we planted the church grew very rapidly uh, in English and in Spanish. And uh, so, you know, here I was, and, and by year six or seven, we, we really had grown quite a bit. And, and uh, we had two congregations, uh, one in English and one in Spanish. But I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling very tired. Uh, the yoke of Jesus feels very heavy and very hard. Uh, and I remember at that point I was in my mid-30s, and I was like, actually, I was praying for retirement. I was like, oh, God, you tricked me in this because I didn't sign up for this. And my joy was, was, was slipping away because it was just so, pastoring was just so hard. Uh, it was unenjoyable. I was stressed out. I remember sitting there saying, everyone else is having a great time in Jesus, but I don't have time, and I'm too exhausted to enjoy Jesus anymore. And it's just not fair, you know. And, and, um, but I had to do it because God told me to do it, right, one of those things. And, and once you're pastoring, you feel trapped, you know. It's like, oh. <laughs> You know, and I was planted the church. I really felt guilty. And, and so, uh, you know, the yoke was hard and heavy, and it wasn't easy and light. And I, I, I can tell you this. If the yoke is hard and heavy, you know it's not Jesus' yoke. Right? Because his yoke is easy and light. doesn't mean there's not suffering involved, because there is suffering involved in serving Jesus. But there's suffering that's, you know, with the gospel, and there's suffering that's stupid. I mean, it was just stupid. Mine was stupid. Mine was ignorant. Mine was, I, I, you know, it was just a lot of unnecessary suffering was in there. But I didn't know, I didn't know how to do it any differently. And uh, so I remember, you know, uh, you've seen this, this uh, thing of the iceberg. Of, it's, a, it's a nice way of, of thinking about discipleship, that we're not just into people coming to Christ and having external change up here, that, that what you could see, which is, you know, they're coming to church now, they're nice, they're reading the Bible, they're worshiping, they're serving. That's what you can see above the surface. But the question is, what's happening down here? And as you know, in the movie, The Titanic, that's what sunk the Titanic, hit an iceberg. But this here is what we want. Jesus came to change the heart, right? And, but if you're pastoring a church for any period of time, you know that like this stuff comes out eventually. If you're pastoring, like, you know, if you're, if you're, I always think if I could just be a traveling evangelist. I wouldn't know all these things. But when you're with people week after week, year after year, in st it comes out under stress and conflict. And then you're seeing really ugly things. You're seeing people do, like people who are on your board, who know the Bible really well, uh, who maybe even graduated a Bible college, but they're in a conflict and they resort to being like nine years old. And you're like, what? And, and you're, like, you're preaching your guts out. You're praying and like nothing's changing. You're like, oh my God. I, so I was watching this saying, people are changing at our church. They're coming. We had a lot, you know, a lot of people came to Christ but they weren't changing deeply. And I could see us recycling the same old problems. And I was like, something's really wrong here with our discipleship. 
And, you know, I got into this because I, I, I want to see people changed by Jesus. I, I'm not an entertainer. I, I'm, I'm, I want people to meet Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. And I could just tell you story after story of people who had dramatic conversions, but were not changing deeply. They, they, un, the underlying structures of sin remained. And it was bewildering to me, especially when you've got spirituality covering the whole thing up. God language, scriptures being quoted. But when you're close to people, you know they're not living this thing. They're defensive. They're arrogant. They're proud. They're unapproachable. They're unsafe. I don't even like being with these people. Okay? And I want to run away from them. I, I, and I'm like, something's wrong here. But they're talking. They love Jesus on their own level. You know? And they're, they're great workers. And I need them to work because i got to build a church. But I don't even want to be with them. And, and they're giving good money on top. So it's just, it's just bewildering after a while, you know. And so I had a lot, we had a lot of that going on. And so I'm, I'm like, what are we going to do to help these people change? Now, this is like, this is, the year now is 1992. 1991, 92. I'm, like, I'm only four or five years in this church plan. I'm really, now, like you, I'm reading all the Christian books on leadership and discipleship. I'm going to conferences. I've been to great seminaries. I, it wasn't like I didn't know what was going on. I'm, I'm very, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping in touch with what's happening out there. And so I'm, I'm trying, and I'm open. I'm open. Like, God, whatever, you know. Like, all right, all right. So, so, you know, I'm doing every discipleship paradigm I know. I'm like, let's do more of it. More scripture, you know. You know Monday night Bible school, great. Let's do that, you know. More, if you get the Bible and then I'll change it, you know. And, didn't seem to change it, you know. And then I was like, okay, everyone got to be in a small group. Fellowship. We're going to bond as the body of Christ, you know. We're going we're to support each other in this counterculture and in the demonic New York City, right? We're going to do it. And we're just multiplying dysfunctional small groups. That's what I found out. We're just dis multiplying chaos, you know. And we were, actually, we were actually planting churches at this time. I mean, let's not go into that. And then... And then and then I said, let's try, let, let's do like, you know, let's do, let's do, you know, Holy Spirit prophetic. So we came to Toronto. <laughs> you know, we're like every, you know, prophetic ministry. It looks like, like, whatever. Where's the fire of God, right? So where is it? Bring them in. Bring them in. So we're bringing in prophetic conference. I'm like, I'm open. Whatever. Vineyard was floating around that time big. I'm like, bring them in. Bring them in. And uh, then we had nights of worship, right? Let's try Friday night's worship, right? It's, you know. Be in the presence of God, you know. The worship, the presence of God will come. It'll get beneath people's eyes, but they'll get transformed, you know, okay. And then we're like, okay, you know what the problem, Pete, at New Life Fellowship? You got demons at New Life. And you got to get rid of these demons. And then the church will be free. So, all right. We bring in the deliverance ministries. And as you probably know, there's different types of deliverance ministries. I said, bring them all in. <laughs> bring them in. So we're driving demons out of everything that moves. We're just driving them out. And, uh, you know, so, and actually, obviously, everything I just said to you is all in the Bible, right? And then it, was, then it was early morning prayer meetings. Let's do what the Koreans do. They do early morning prayer, right? 6 a.m. And, and, and half nights on Friday night. So it's almost like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Oh, thank you. I'm going to pray. And God now is obligated to change these people. I'm like, so we're doing six o'clock prayer meeting. Obviously, not a lot of people are showing up. I don't care. I'm going out. I'm going. I'm exhausted. So we're doing early morning prayer meetings. We're doing half nights of prayer now. Okay. Every other Friday night. Friday night. Every, they went to every Friday night and every other. 
And I'm like, God, we're going to pray, bring it down, you know, transform people. And that didn't seem to get, you know, that didn't seem, there was some, we just weren't getting at some portion of material. Now, everything I said to you is all in the Bible, and I think it needs to be part of our discipleship on some realm. Everything there, it's all biblical. But there was something missing. Now, understand, like you, I've given my life at this point to be a pastor, to, 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 to equip people, Ephesians 4, and it's, I'm sitting here, and again, I'm in a war zone of New York. I'm dealing with, you know, these, I'm not dealing with, you know, suburban people with nice jobs. I'm getting robbed by my own parishioners, okay? All right, a guy on crack got robbed by him, imagine? And so I'm like, if Jesus doesn't show up, okay, and change people deeply, okay, I am in the wrong. And I, I really felt called by God. I just couldn't figure out why we were at such a wall and what was wrong. And then... Um, what happened was I, it became clear to me that not only were people having problems in their icebergs, I had some of my own. And the first was I was exhausted and tired and stressed out. And I remember my wife and I sitting on a couch saying to each other, what good is it? We are saving the world in New York City, and we are losing our souls here. We had four small girls at the time, and we were dying on the inside. Uh, and then secondly, our Spanish service in the afternoon had a split, which you all read about. That split uh, took me down. 200 people left the church and went down the street and planted a church. And, I, you know, I was the lead pastor. I was an associate pastor. He's from Colombia. And, you know, it was, all in, it was all spiritualized. You know, it was all prophetic. You know, he was Abraham, and I was La, and he was David, and I was Saul. I mean, I don't know, you know. What do you say to those things? But I found out the day I walked in. And I was so crushed that this had gone on for six months. I had no idea. And this could happen in our spirit-filled church. And I was so disgusted and angry that I wasn't sure I wanted to be a pastor anymore. But really, to, make, to really be serious, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a Christian anymore. Because I was so disillusioned. Because this guy was so gifted, really gifted, smart. He had like he had there's ten talents. The guy had fifteen. And uh, I remember it was fifty people left in that Spanish service in the afternoon, and I'm there preaching, and I'm just trying to be faithful to God. But I am inside. I am, and I'm not. You know, I don't have clinical depression, but I was I, I was really depressed. And uh, so I'm in I'm in now a crisis because I'm cursing, I'm confused, I'm, I'm I'm angry. I hate this guy, and I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor, and I don't have any theology for this. I, I really, my, my theology box is just shattered because I really, I'm, I, I have such anger, but I'm not supposed to be angry, so I'm stuffing it, but yet it's coming out in curses in private, of course. <laughs> but then it started coming out like with friends because I was just so enraged, and I didn't know what to do with it. So at that point, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful, and I'm in this turmoil internally, and I'm trying, you know, and, and so I start going to a Christian counselor, which I don't even believe in Christian counseling, but I'm like, I have to go to talk to somebody. And because my, honestly, my pastor friends were not helpful. They prayed for me. They tried to drive it out of me. They threw verses at me. And I just knew the remedies that I were being given at that point were just not helpful. And so someone suggested you need to go see, talk to somebody. So I... You know, when you're down and out, you'll talk to a frog. Really, you're like, somebody, help me. 
And I really was like, I was like, this, I'm, I'm, I'm at the precipice here. This is 1994. So for the next two years, I'm on an inward journey. That, that was a new experience for me. Up to that, everything's out here. Now I'm so broken and I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm stopped. And I'm, I'm like looking inside. And uh, so I remember like, you know, I'm mean, going to counsel's office. I was like going to the principal's office, you know. And, you know, and, and what do you feel? Like, what do I feel? What do I feel? What do you think I feel? What do I know what I, I'm angry. I know I got a lot of anger, you know. So I start reading some different literature like Henry now, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm expanding out now, I'm, you know, other things and, and uh, theologically and wrestling with some stuff. And then I'm into this thing two years and I don't really, I, internally some good things are happening, but I'm still kind of like, can, you know, I'm like still struggling where it's all going with the church. January 2nd, my wife comes to me and tells me, you know, Pete, uh, your leadership stinks. And uh, you don't have the courage to confront the people that need to be confronted because you know that if you do, they'll leave. And you're still recovering from the 200 people that left two years ago. So uh, I'm going to another church. I quit. And she did. She quit the church that I was leading. And uh, that was unheard of. I don't know about Canada. But, but there was never such a thing in the United States. All right. <laughs> and, uh, and definitely in my Italian-American subculture, not in the subculture. And it was not in the Christian culture, I could tell you that. So she, she was not angry. She was just resolute. She had thought a lot about it. And uh, she started attending another church. We are now in a full crisis. Now understand, Jerry and I were friends for eight years before we got married and felt, before we fell in love. So we had a long history. She was quite a Christian leader in and of her own you know, self. So we, we had a great foundation. Now we're married at that point, seven, eight years. And um, so it wasn't, she wasn't leaving me, but she, but she was done with this and the way I was operating. And uh, so at that point, I heard you had Gordon McDonald speak, or you've had him speak, or you might have him speak here. He'd been one of my mentors. I'd done my internship with him at Grace Chapel, and I remember calling him and Leighton Ford, who was also one of my mentors at the time, and, and I told them I was in a crisis, that if I didn't fix this thing or basically fix my wife, that I was going to have to resign. And uh, so our board sent me away to a, they recommended some place for fallen pastors, you know, who embezzle money or commit immorality or <laughs> adultery. So we went to this place for a week for that. And so really it was a, it was a five day intensive. Two Christian counselors and us. And it's so funny, Jerry was here, she, I went there to fix her. She went there to fix the church. And obviously, God got us there to meet us, you know, in our marriage. It was a big surprise. So day three, my, my wife lets me have it and uh, tells me what it would have been like to be married to me the previous eight years, which was not a pretty picture, I can tell you that. Uh, and uh, it was, but it was the most honest moment in our marriage. Because I knew, you know, you know, how you know your spouse is thinking it, but they're not saying it. Because she was also a nice Christian up to then. <laughs> <laughs> then she got honest. And, uh, you know, there it was. And uh, I'll never forget the next day, she, she basically woke me up in the middle of the night, standing on the bed, and she cursed me out, which I'd never heard her curse before. She just cursed me out for living what I'd done to us and our marriage and the kids and New York and everything. Church plant and the chaos and the conflicts and poverty and everything else. And she's, you know, roller coaster ride and being jerked around and... and uh, 
then, you know, she didn't sleep. Then that was it, you know. So the next morning, she wasn't speaking to me. So, and she was up all night. So I went by myself to these two therapists and me. And so here I am. And they say, where's your wife? I said, well, she's in the room. She's not really speaking to me right now. And uh, so, and they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Can you tell me what to do? That's why I'm here. I don't know what to do. I, I got a lot of problems. So they said, why don't you just take some time and just, you know, get by yourself, and then we'll come back together. And uh, now understand what happened at that moment was I'd been thinking about some things for two years. It wasn't like it came out of nowhere, but it was like it all came together and I saw it, that I was an emotional child. I just saw it. I said, my I was an emotional infant that my own wife didn't feel loved by me. I mean, I loved my wife, but, but she didn't feel it. Because I was so consumed with the church and building that and living out my family of origin stuff. And I was just so unaware of so many things. And I saw it, that emotional, I, I really had a, I really was a, it was a conversion. Uh, and I pray that maybe some of you will have a conversion of sorts, you know, in your own journey. Because you have a conversion, nothing's the same. You, you actually, you, you, you make a break with some things that you believe that were true in the past and you, you realize that's not true. And I saw it that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. That it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I saw it. I said, oh my gosh. But I saw it in myself first. Uh, that what marks maturity is 1 Corinthians 13. It's, it's humility. It's brokenness. It's, it's approachability. It's safety. It's, it's love. It's it's not gifts and anointing and power and knowledge and all those exterior things. And, and, and although I knew, I kind of knew it intellectually, I didn't know it, know it. Because I finally saw it myself. I said, oh my gosh, I'm not mature. I'm immature. No wonder that I'm trying to raise up mothers and fathers of the faith. And I'm a spiritual infant myself. That my discipleship has had huge gaps in it. Huge gaps. And in, within evangelicalism that I've been a part of, these United States, all these decades. At that point, you know, 17 years. And uh, that was a revelation. And so at that point, um, uh, I, I made a decision to, uh, well, first of all, Jerry and I saw each other. I think we, you know, when she, when she did come back the next day, you know, we, did, we, we actually saw each other. I took a sabbatical for three to four months to get my marriage together. Uh, and we made a commitment that I said, if any point that this church hinders our, our marriage and our love for each other, I will resign. We'll leave New York. We'll move to New Jersey. <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, but we'll, 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 I, I will leave. That's my issue of boundaries. But uh, we, we made a commitment to lead out of our marriage uh, at that point. And we took a, a, a three to four month sabbatical to get our, 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 inner, our lives together to, before we walked back into that church, which we did. And then we came back in the new life and we began to incorporate some things that we now call emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, and, uh, you know, very slowly, initially. And it was very powerful. Things like a genogram, uh, things, you know, skills. We just began to, some things that we were learning ourselves on our own journey. We got to bring it to the church and incorporate as we say mission, but bring in the beginnings of emotionally spirituality. And it was extremely powerful. And we began to see people really change. Now, we were changing. Now, we started seeing people change. But we also started to confront things that needed to be confronted. We, one of the biggest things was we decided to live in the truth. That was, we decided that we weren't going to lie anymore. I mean, that sounds so funny, doesn't it? 
Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, Mikael? Michael? Michelle. Michelle. So, Michelle. So, you know, uh, so, like, if Michelle is, uh, you know, an idiot, I'm not going to say he's an idiot, but if he's inappropriate and arrogant and he's in leadership, I wasn't going to let it go anymore. We were going to talk about it. And uh, that I wasn't going to say everything is fine with Jim when it's not. And that if someone asked me for an, an answer, I'd give them truth in a very respectful way. That was like every day I said, Jerry, I can do this. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be honest. It was amazing because I was, I was so into appeasing everybody and keeping everybody happy that I was constantly lying. And to be honest was like really a new way of living and to actually call things what they were. Like, you know, you're Canadian nice. I was pastor nice. You know, I was just like, I didn't like conflict. I hated conflict. And not that I was initiating conflict, but I was people that were out of order. I was now calling it. And uh, so the church has begun to change and blossom. And uh, then I had a third conversion. And uh, so, so 1996 to 2002, um, uh, I am basically, we're, we're, we're now living this thing out. And how many of you read the Emotionally Healthy Church book? That was the first book that came in 2003. And basically, that came out of the first seven years of just living out EHS in our church. We let it age like good wine. And so themes like, you know, gen- genogram, grieving, limits, uh, brokenness and vulnerability, and just theologically thinking about it and, and, and working it out in our church. Then I put it down in a book, you know, and wrote that first book. And uh, I thought we were the only church that was missing this emotional health. I had no idea it was the whole world was in this, 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 this pro- problem of discipleship that did not include. Well, we, we all had the same problems all over the world. That was a big surprise. But I realized uh, as we were, this thing was happening in our church, I am not into people just having better lives. I'm into people falling in love with Jesus. I mean, that, I'm a pastor, I'm about Jesus, loving Jesus and loving other people out of that love for Jesus. That's why we're here. And so I realized people are so busy in New York. They're just, people are, and they got to slow down for God. And how do we slow them down? So I, I, I took a sabbatical for four months uh, to visit monasteries uh, in North America and in Europe to learn from monastic uh, orders about slowing down to be with God. And what could I apply to our evangelical missional church in Queens? And I, for, I, got a, I got a grant to do it from Lily, and uh, it was phenomenal. We learned a ton. And God met us. It was, I call it my third conversion. And uh, we began to incorporate things like silence and solitude and uh, Sabbath in a serious way. And Jerry and I first, we really slowed down our lives. And then we began to bring this into our church, incorporate this. And all of a sudden, it was like another big wave. So we had both the emotional health piece and this contemplative slow down spirituality piece and it was like a bomb went off at the church we weren't we weren't quite sure what happened but it's like something got something happens like everyone seemed to become be becoming christians all over again in terms of transformation and uh yeah there's a you know i remember we went on our first retreat we went to a trappist monastery in um massachusetts and we were silent for five days now except for the offices but we didn't talk for five days now, let me tell you, when you're in that kind of silence for five days, by day four, you're not even sure what your name is. I mean, you're like, all that silence just kind of strips you. And you start seeing things you don't see in yourself, around you, in terms of idolatries, idols. And it's just, it's incredibly clarifying. And uh, we walked out of there um, that first week of this four-month sabbatical. And we were still, we were going to live these rhythms of silence and solitude. And uh, this, this is why oh, sorry, last way I like the picture is this is the circle of activity, and this is our being with Jesus. 
And very often we've got more activity for God going on than our being with Jesus can sustain. And we're kind of out of whack. And we realized that we were doing more for God than he asked. And so we made, a ma- we made some major adjustments in our lives. You know the Mar- Math- Mar- Math- Martha Mary story. And this, this passage has been talked about for 2,000 years by bishops and leaders and written about. You know, Martha's distracted, worried, upset. Mary's chosen what's better, sitting at Jesus' feet. And so we decided, we said, well, we're going to slow down our lives. We're going to stay at New Life as senior pastors. We're going to lead our church. But we're going to slow down our being with God so it, it's, it's big enough to sustain our doing for God. And uh, it was revolutionary. Began to do offices. and we'll, we'll, We're going to do offices tomorrow, you know, together, morning and midday. And uh, then we began to slowly bring in. You know, as in, we're an urban church. You know, kids with do-rags. You know, we're like a rough-and-tumble place. And we started doing things like silence. And contemplative services and days alone with God. I mean, it was like people thought we were we were crazy initially, but it was like we realized that everybody has a dimension of longing for silence and solitude and being with God. That something got awakened in people, and it was amazing. And now our fourth, my fourth conversion really came out of um, in 2007. I'm on D there on your sheet. Is that a new life at that point had grown, uh, you know, pretty large. We had a lot of staff and in the church and we had the community development corporation and I just was like I was, I was struggling with how does all apply to running a large organization I'm talking about hiring and firing and budgets and job descriptions and strategic planning and team building and, and like you you know I, I'd go to the Willow Creek conferences and read all the books on all that leadership stuff and I'd try to bring it in the church and I always felt like I couldn't figure it out because we're not a secular organization we're a church you know and how, how does this all work and and so it's a long story, but I, you know, I, I realized that um, uh, I needed to go to the next level in my own leadership. It was like another iceberg moment of God taking me deeper. And so I, from 2007 to 2013, I, I basically was, I, 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 got in, I got engaged deeply in the executive running of our church uh, and the whole integrity issues. And I just began to take notes of what I was learning. And I, I didn't do it to write a book. I just did it for me. I just was, I said, we God, how, how, does this, how does this planning and decision-making work? How does, you know, what, what's involved? So anyway, out of that book came the Emotionally Healthy Leader book in 2015. I just took my journals, and I was like, okay, and I put it down. But, but let me just give you the thesis right here. You know, now this, this, this book came out of my experience, obviously, at New Life Fellowship. But also, at that point, we'd begun to travel uh, you know, around the North America and around the world. And we saw the same themes at our church that were happening globally. And so if you saw in the book in the first chapter, what's the characteristic of an emotionally unhealthy leader? Well, low self-awareness. They prioritize ministry over marriage or singleness, do more activity for God than their relationship with God can sustain, and they lack a work Sabbath rhythm. We'll unpack this. And so the controlling image of the book is the skyscraper. And uh, it's a New York City skyscraper. And the New York City, as many of you know, is built on rock. And so when they build a skyscraper, they've got to put these pilings, they're called. In or steel beams deep into the rock. Very difficult to do. It's not like putting it into, into, into dirt. So they get these, if you've ever been in New York and you've been on vacation and you hit all, you're in a hotel and they get these cranes going all day long, you get crazy because the cranes are just pu- pushing in these pilings. And here's the pilings. Now, the higher the, the skyscraper, the deeper the pilings have to go in. So the, like a, a large skyscraper will go down 25 stories. 25 stories, that's a long way down to put a piling. Now, uh, a fellow in our church is a construction engineer. And he has told me about times they did not put the pilings in correctly. And they have had, and so what happens is this. 
the building cracks or the building just leans over slightly, can't open the windows. Cracks are in the walls, you know, because it's leaning. It's not, it's not on properly. And so then they have to make a choice, either depending on the context, either they lift the building up and they got to redo it. And they've done that, I'm told. And, or they have to tear the whole building down because it's going to collapse. They tear it down, they pull up the pilings, and they do it all over again. And he goes, That's all, you only have two options because it will not stand. It cannot stay there. And, uh, and so uh, I, I realize there's four inner life issues of a leader that have to be in order. They have to be solid. And if they're not solid, what's going to happen is the outer activity of leadership, and I ended up picking four critical areas that we get tripped up on, that if we don't get these four things in right, these things up here, planning and decision-making, culture and team building, power and boundaries, endings and new beginnings, that, which is the last half of the Emotional Like the Leader book. If you don't get the four inner life issues properly in, uh, these things will crack eventually. Maybe not the first three years, five years, 10 years. Maybe it'll actually, you'll make it actually 20 years. But at some point, always there'll be a crack. It will not be able to sustain. At some point, there's going to be some problems. And I've yet to see an exception to this. And so I identified, here's the four inner life issues. And we're going to touch on all four in our time together. First is face your shadow. Second is lead out of your marriage or singleness. Third is slow down for love and union. The fourth is practice Sabbath alike. Now you say, you've got to pick so many other issues. You're right, you could pick, you know, have a Bible study, have a prayer, but you know, but this is how I identified it. And again, this is organically came out of our life together at New Life and around the world. These four. And the first half of the EH Leader book is about that. Now, when I wrote the Emotional Leader book, I realized most leaders wanted to skip the first four chapters. I got that down. They want to jump right to, what can I learn about the practical stuff about leadership? Tell me about planning and decision-making. Just tell me, how, how do I do better planning? How do I, how do I do better decisions? You know, how do I do better culture and team building? How do I do power and wise boundaries better? How do I do endings, new beginnings? In other words, they, this is the practical stuff. The problem is that we actually think that we can do this without that. We actually think we, we, can, we can just take secular sources and, and strategy and paste them on into a church of the living God where the Holy Spirit dwells with Jesus the head and we think it's just going to fly. No, it will not fly because who you are is more important than what you do. And who you are is always going to come out. I don't care what program you use or what planning strategy you have. It's going to come out. We'll talk about that tomorrow, for example, with the shadow. But uh, uh, so... Uh, this, this is what we'll, we'll unpack. Now, I, we're not going to have time, but we'll touch on it. These are large issues. These are, these are very large. I know how, we do planning and decision-making every single day as a church. We're making plans every day. What are we doing this week? You may be doing the same thing, but you're, you're planning. You're making decisions every week. Those decisions are informed by what's going on inside of you. Your walk with God, if you're married or you're single, how you do a healthy singleness in marriage, how you do loving union with Jesus. This whole idea of rhythms, of Sabbath work rhythms, your shadow is in there. But if you're unaware of your shadow, you're projecting it out. You don't even know where you're projecting it out. And uh, you're casting that shadow. So they inform the church as a body. That's why the leader uh, is so critical. So just, you know, as we move into our little exercise here, just to kind of give you perspective, this is touched on on one of the pages in the book, but it's actually quite important um, about just getting EHS. And that's this, you know, this comes from a guy named Benjamin Bloom. Any of you know Benjamin Bloom? That author? he's a edu- he's a like one of the like he'd be like 
Dr. Spock of education. Like he's been 60 years, like, like, a, like if you're getting your master's or PhD in education, you will study Benjamin Bloom. And his thing is how do people learn? That's his whole massive work. And this is, a, this is a simplistic adaptation for our purposes as pastors and leaders. So he would say you could take any value you want to teach children or young adults. Say you want to teach them about, um, let's, take, let's, take, let's take being hospitable to refugees, right? Issue for all of us. So, okay, so you, you help them get, you're, you're teaching them. They become aware. Oh, yes, there's a refugee problem. You know, there's refugees coming here to Canada. Great, great. They ponder. They begin to read about it. What's going on in Syria and Iraq? What's happening in Europe? They're reading. Now they're learning. They're watching movies. Wow. Oh, my God. Now they start to value it. This is really important. Canada needs to take in refugees. Absolutely. Everyone should be concerned about the refugees. Which, you know, now they're, you know, they're preaching it. But they still haven't done this yet. They haven't had an actual action behavioral gap. They, have, they haven't changed their lives. They're not taking in a refugee. They're not giving their own money. They're not going out there and, and advocating for policy. There's no, there's no change in their life. And he would say they haven't learned it yet. They just, they're aware of it. They think they know it, but they don't know it because their life is not informed by it. And then at some point, they actually change their behavior. Now they've prioritized it. Now they've really learned it. And now they own it. Now you could take that in any, he would take in any learning theory. You could take where we're teaching respect for other people, right? Or, you know, you know, not to be racist, right? We could take any value, care for the poor. So and the same thing applies to EHS. Let's take, we're going to talk about so many things here that are, we call emotion of the spirituality. So I want you to be aware you are somewhere on this journey of EHS. You know, what is it? Maybe some of you are like, you're just becoming aware of it. You're like, oh, this is really interesting. Sounds like some really good ideas. I really like it. Some of you are pondering it. You're like, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to get some free sermons from Scazzaro this week. You know, and I hope you do get a couple of free sermons. You deserve it. Uh, it's nice to have a couple of easy weeks. Uh, and uh, so let's take, we're going to do slowing down. Slow down your life for Jesus. You're like, absolutely. Awesome. Mary, Martha, yes. You know, your value, you're being a ponder. You're being to read some books on Sabbath. You're like, oh my gosh, great. You're valuing it. Now you're preaching it from the pulpit. Everybody, we've got to slow down to Jesus. We gotta, but, you're, you, but you're still having to slow down. You're preaching it. But you're, you haven't done anything in your life. You're just preaching it. In fact, you're so fired up because you're kind of preaching to yourself. I've done that. You know, I'm not living it, but I'm preaching it. So I want people to hopefully get it. And if I preach, my wife would say to me, you're yelling like it's going to help. You know, you're not Peter Drew. You're not doing it yet, but you're yelling at us to do it. And, uh, uh, and then, but there comes a point where, you know, I'm hoping and praying that some of you will actually make a shift a shift here the next day and begin to actually do some behaviors different. You actually change your life, the way that you're a leader, the way that you're a Christian, the way that you're building your church and, uh, and begin to prioritize it. But I, this, you know, Benjamin Bloom would say, this is the most difficult thing. This is the gap. And let me tell you something. Evangelicalism is notorious for, we, we have so much information that we don't do because this is the big problem. So that's why this is going to be somewhat of an experiential day we're going to have together because <coughs> my prayer is that you'll have enough experience with Jesus in our time together that you'll jump over that gap. Okay, so, and I hope we move along. So, okay, so let's, so anyways, this, so at New Life, for example, this is what it looks like. If you come to New Life Fellowship Church, you know, you come to church, you're new, you know, you go to a, a membership class. We do Alpha at our church. You know, you're not a Christian, you go to Alpha. We love Alpha. We think it's good. And then we have these two basic courses. We say, you're going you're gonna to do some deep discipleship here. You, you, a discipleship that really changes your life. You, we're not just having you just sit here and attend. 
uh, out of which you're going to, you know, small groups and all that stuff, but make an impact in the world. But uh, <coughs> so we're very intentional and very clear with people. If you want to go to a church that's attend, and, you know, you're welcome to attend, but uh, we're not an entertainment center. We make disciples, you know, for the sake of the world around us. And uh, we're very clear, and we have a pathway, and this is how this, how, this is your pathway here. Here's your steps. And uh, it, people are quite shocked because they're not used to this. They're used to kind of like sit there, I, you know, I'm entertained. It's great service. I'm, they're consumers, you know, and if it's not good, I'll go to somewhere else. And we're saying if you want that, we want to encourage you to go somewhere else because that's not what we're doing here. We are building a church. We're building a countercultural community in the new family of Jesus for the sake of reaching the world for Christ. But you're coming here that you might learn to live in the new family of Jesus and be transformed by him. And our role as leaders is to equip you for that task. And so we're very intentional about it. But you come here, in a sense, at your own risk, that you're going to open your life up, that Jesus can change you, like he's changing us as a leadership. So <coughs> here's what we're going to do. We're going to do an exercise. So let, let's, go, let's go to um, the bottom of the page there, and then we'll close with this. It's, it's one of our skills. It's called Explore the Iceberg. <coughs> now, <clears throat> let me explain this to you. This, 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 um, what happened in 1996, when Jerry and I started this journey, <clears throat> we realized that we needed to create experiences for people to do the theology. So we began to develop skills, we call them, or tools. <coughs> and this is one of them. And... Uh, we call it Explore Your Iceberg. <clears throat> and so, my notes out here. Uh, now, again, an iceberg, 10% is seen, 90% is unseen. Uh, and uh, so, you know, many of you know that this is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, <clears throat> the 32nd president of the United States. And there was a documentary on him by Ken Burns, <clears throat> and which we watched it and loved it. And uh, it's very interesting as you watch that documentary for leadership. You know, he, he, he was a... Uh, you know, there's, there's necessary suffering as leaders, and there's unnecessary suffering, right? But this guy knew suffering. I mean, Roosevelt, the Depression, you know, the war. And uh, when he died, there's a great picture of a, uh, of a man weeping on the street. And the reporter says to him, did you know Roosevelt? And he goes, no, I didn't know him, but he knew me. Like, he, he's a guy who created fireside chats. So he's, he used, you know, he used that technology to really connect with people. First president ever done that. Uh, very personable, and the people loved him. So he accomplished so many things that were amazing as president. I mean, the GI Bill, Social Security, unemployment compensation, you go to the list, preservation of the parks. I mean, he led us through World War II. He was quite a guy. Uh, but uh, he was not well integrated as a person. <clears throat> he had polio, as many of you know, and uh, he never showed pain. Never showed pain, and he had a lot of it, even to his secretary. So he'd be, he'd be you know, Grimacing in pain, getting up in tremendous pain. Someone walking in the room and go, you know, he would just smile. But he never allowed people to see him in pain. Um, and aid, um, you know, he had, as you know, he had a long affair with his wife's secretary uh, for decades. And uh, he and Eleanor did not have a marriage. In fact, uh, their children rarely saw him, and they felt abandoned by him. Now, he had five children. There were 19 divorces between the five children. Here's what Eleanor said about the state of the lives of her children. She said, when I think about my children, I want to commit suicide. So there was another side to his leadership that we don't talk about very often. Now, he died at age 62 of a cerebral, cerebral hemorrhage. But if you know his story, his body 
he, he died he died way too young but it was a stress on his body everything was stuffed now i suspect he was very unaware of his iceberg as a leader not but i relate to him because i too was doing a lot for god uh, helping people, serving people. I was being caring, loving, you know, present. I'm being stable. All the blows of church life coming at you. You know, you're standing firm, right? I'm, a, you know, I'm just up there week after week and not showing vulnerability, not showing weakness, not showing pain. But like Roosevelt, I, w- I was not just hurting myself and not just hurting my marriage and family. I-, I was hurting the whole church. I was just so unaware of it. And um, but like Roosevelt, I I did not realize I had an iceberg. Like, I just, I didn't, like, oh, yeah. I, I didn't, like, I didn't, I was just living here. I was not here. And uh, I, I couldn't told you much about it. So our exterior world flows from our interior world. That's what Jesus taught, right? Out of the hearts. Everything flows out of the heart. Mark chapter 7. And, uh, you know, they say, you know, as one wise mentor said to us, the reason there's so much conflict and chaos, Pete, out here is because there's chaos and conflict in here. It's internally in here. Yes, it's external, but really it's first internal. And until you deal with the internal, you'll just keep having it externally. It was very helpful. And uh, so you can add programs. You could, you know, you can get new programs. You can go to the church, get a, get a better church, less crazy people. You know, read new books. You know, get some new relationships. You can make more money. Get a church, they'll pay you double. You know, pray more, fast more. But if you don't look on the inside of what's going on in your iceberg, you are simply moving chairs on the Titanic. Nothing's fundamentally changing. And, uh, and so this skill is based on a few theses. First is this, that unprocessed emotions don't die. That, in other words, unacknowledged emotions going on inside of us, they, they, get, they, they, go, they get buried alive. They come out in panic attacks and cancers and high blood pressure and cholesterol and physical ailments and overeating and lying and depressions and, you know, escapism and all kinds of addictive behaviors because... God created us that we, we feel. We're emotional people. I mean, you, you realize when you stop feeling, you're dead. Like, that's when we know you're dead. Like, you don't feel anything. Like, so, so we don't process them. They just get buried alive. And uh, they, they, they're the source of all kinds of problems. And um, anxieties. <clears throat> Overweight issues. And all kinds of things come out of it. But remember, they, they do not die. They live in our bodies. The body keeps the score. Number two is that awareness is necessary for transformation and uh, ongoing conversion. Uh, see, the real danger is when we're unaware of what's going on inside of us. And, and uh, you know, if we're not aware of what's happening, if we're not in reality about what's going on inside of us, we're not in spirituality. Because if anything, spirituality is about reality and truth. And to not be aware of what's happening What's going on inside of us, and yet functioning, uh, is not a, it's not a, a spirituality because um, we're one thing on the outside, but we're another thing on the inside. Now, thirdly, is that healthy community requires that people do know themselves, and uh, so to understand how how can we be a countercultural community? How can, we're, the, we're the family of Jesus. We're not like the world. We're not the Lions Club or the Chamber of Commerce. I don't know what you have here in Canada, but we're not we're not we're not a secular club. We're the church of the living God. We're a, a countercultural community that loves each other, unlike the world. But if you don't know yourself, how can I know you? Like, you know, I, I joke, you know, here's a small group. How are you? Good. 
How are you? Good. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. 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 Everybody's good. I don't know anybody. So I got to go to an AA meeting to get some reality where people aren't projecting a false self or pretending to be something. But the church, for some reason, we have all these layers on because people don't know themselves. I can't get to know you either, so I have to guess. And you ever tell someone they're angry? I'm not angry. You're, I'm not angry. Who are you to tell me? What, you know, I'm, you get a little craziness. And, and uh, you know, the degree to which you feel, for example, your own losses is the degree to which you can feel other people's losses. Uh, it's a basic principle. And if you don't grieve your losses, how are you going to grieve with anybody else? How can, lo- loving, loving people is connection. But uh, we can never build communities where people don't feel. And uh, we've got a lot of that going on. And um, my gosh. So have I entered my own pain and sadness and shame and discouragements and fears? And, and again, love is about feeling felt. But if I don't feel myself, how am I going to feel you? And then finally, you know, emotions play a part in discerning God's voice. That's such a massive topic, you know. And, and, and it, I mean, God speaks to us, of course, through Scripture as a given. And, and he speaks to us through circumstances, of course. But God, one of the primary ways that God speaks to us is through what's going on inside of us. And if you're familiar with Ignatian spirituality, consolations and desolations, it's a major source of leading from God that for some of us, we have no idea. We can't even go there because we don't feel. Or we, not, we don't take the time to actually let ourselves feel things because it takes us down some roads we don't want to go. We're scared of where it might lead. And we actually ignore it thinking that if we don't think about it, it's not true. But it really is true. So here's the exercise we're going to do. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, yeah just give examples here. Um, because you see, I want to feel and say, ask myself the question, how is God coming through me through what I'm feeling? So, for example, you know, I, I get an email from somebody. Did you ever get this? And you, you see who it's from, and all of a sudden your body goes into panic. Because like, it's tight. Now, you have to ask yourself, what's going on? Like, what is happening right now? How is God coming to you right now? What's he saying to you right now? Or have you ever been in a conversation with somebody... And you finish the conversation and you are just, you feel death. You're depressed. You're like, you don't even know why. It, just, it, was a, it wasn't, it was, a, it was a cordial conversation, respectful, but it was just like, it was just something really wrong with that conversation. It was just, and you want to run away from that person. And maybe you felt, you know, they're criticized, they were judgmental, but they were doing it in a very religious way. You know, you know like, they, you know, pastor, you know, I think you really should consider... Oh, someone sent an email to, you know, anyway, yeah, I don't go down that road. Anyway, <laughs> but you know what it's like. We all know. Anyway. Happened just yesterday. Okay. So, so here's the exercise we're going to do. We're, we're, you're going to do an Explore the Iceberg. So I need you to, on your left side of your paper, you're going to answer these four questions. And so I'm going to ask you four questions, and I want you to journal your answers. Now, think of David in the Psalms. David was a man after God's own heart. He, he... The Psalms have the full range of emotions. David is emotionally fully alive. He's dancing. He's suicidal. He loves people. He hates people. He's got, you know, dash him against the rocks. You know, he's, he's depressed. He's angry. He's got the, it's all there. That's why people love the Psalms when they're in trouble. But yet he's a man after God's own heart. But what makes him so beautiful and unique is, is he, he pours out his soul to the Lord. He, he's aware and he brings it to God. He's honest about it. Job is raw, honest. And so in the same way, I want to invite you to be honest and do this as Psalm 62 says, pour out your, pour out your soul before the Lord. Trust in him at all times. 
So I'm going to invite you to do this as a prayer before the Lord uh, together, okay? So number one, first question. What are you mad about? Now, listen, this could be anything. Just, okay, Lord, what, what am I mad about? It could be a person's comment to you. It could be an email. It could be something, all of a sudden something in the past. It may be your friend, spouse, kid, church. I mean, what, do you, what are some things that you're mad about? Just it's okay, a little silence before the Lord, and just make some notes. Okay, staying with the same question, number one. If there's one more thing that you are mad about, what might that be? What are you sad about? What are some things that you're sad about? And again, it can be health, relationships, programs that flop, church, neighbors, your, your town, government, something in the past. What, what are some things that you're just you're sad about? offer that before the Lord. Again, staying with number two here. If there was one more thing that you were sad about, what might that be? And just, again, pour it out before God. Offer it to God. All right, number three. What, what are... What are you anxious about? What are you anxious about today? I can't think of money or future or health or maybe your job or parents, family, siblings. What are some things you're anxious about? Again, if there's one more thing you were anxious about, what might that be? Staying with number three. What else are you fearful about or concerned about? 
right, then lastly, last question is, what are you glad about? You're really thankful to God about some things that you're just really glad about. Okay, so let's just take a moment. What was that experience like for you? What, what was it like for you to do that? Uh, what did you observe about yourself just doing that? How was it? Because you know, anger, everybody, is a, is, the, is, a, is a secondary emotion. The primary, whenever you're angry, you have to ask yourself, what am I sad or afraid of? Because underneath that anger is often sadness and fear. I'll give you an example. I was with one of our leaders at our church uh, two nights ago. And uh, uh, it was in our EHS course. And so she was sharing how angry she was about her daughter her adult daughter, because, uh, I don't know, she'd, she'd gone to pick up something in her daughter's closet or something to, to clean it up, and her daughter had such a reaction and yelled at her mom, and had this big conflict. And, 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 and they haven't spoken now in three weeks. And, she, and she's so angry at her daughter. Anger. And, 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 then, she, and she said, then she said, I gave it to the Lord! You know, and I said, all right. I said, let's keep God out of it for a minute. I said, what are you sad about about this whole instance? And she goes, sad about it? I said, well, is it the fact that she's 23 and you, you, she's a single mom? You've given your whole, you love her. You, you love her. You've given your whole life to raise her. And the fact that she doesn't trust you is so hurtful. Is that possibly it? And she says, that's great. Exactly. And then she says, and, and, I, and, and I said, well, well, and I said, and now the fact that three weeks have passed, and she said, I'm so angry, three weeks, and we went back to anger, three weeks have passed, you know, and, and we haven't talked now, and she's cut me off, and I said, well, and I said, and how do you feel about that? And I said, anger, I said, well, what's underneath the anger? She goes, oh my God, I, I miss her, I'm sad, I'm a close friend, and so, was it, so underneath her anger, and then she said, she's Jamaican, West Indies, she goes, we Jamaicans, we don't do feelings, you know, it was so funny, there was a whole bunch of people in, our, in, in the room at that point. And, you know, Chinese, we have, we have Koreans, we got everybody in our church, you know. I have Jews, we got everyone. I said, now what culture does feelings well? Raise your hands. You know, nobody raised their hand. You know, because we all do it poorly in different ways. And it was because it's all broken. 
It's all broken. So it's very important. And, and again, we're socialized. Uh, again, men very often we don't we can do anger, but we're not allowed to do, you know, sadness and fear. But all, a lot depends on your family. You know, how your family did feelings is how you do feelings, because you know. And then you got the church bad theology on top of that. That you know our feelings are deceitful and wicked above all things, and our heart don't trust them. So you know, fact, faith, feeling, right? That's a campus crusade thing, you know. And so feelings are at the caboose. So don't think about it. You're you know, and, and so that bad theology. You know, it's so significant. So, I mean, you know, just think about the book of Job, 35 chapters of him ranting and raving, I mean, basically. I mean, we would not put that in the Bible. I mean, it was like, what's he doing? And then you got David committing adultery and murder and writes a song about it, Psalm 51, and puts it in the worship book. Okay? I mean, what are you doing, like David? Like, but he's just like out there. He's so emotionally alive. Think, think about, we have a whole book called Lamentations, a whole book, and we don't do sadness. Think about that. So we, we do what the world does. And, and so we are human beings. We feel. That's what makes us human. And yet we slice off a part of our humanity. Do you understand? Like, like, we, we cut, we, like we just sliced off. And we're half human trying to lead our churches. And so do you understand? The fact that you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's not true. It's all in there. It's buried in there. It's your iceberg. And it, it's in there because it's a gift. God's coming through that. If we'll actually take the time and actually process it before him. We don't follow all of our feelings. We follow Jesus, but one of the, a, a major way God comes to us is through what's going on inside of us. Right? You, you sense this joy. You, you, they say it's Haiti. You feel like, oh my gosh, I got such a heart for Haiti. It's, it's not that God told you to go to Haiti. I mean, like, but why are you going to Haiti? Because I, I, I can't, I feel like I have to. It's like inside of me, I have this longing and hunger and passion. Why am I, why are you a worship pastor or a musician? Because something inside of you, you're, you're sensitive to consolations and desolations. You're listening to the Holy Spirit inside. But feelings are, Ignatian theology is like huge on this from the 1500s. It's like, this is the best work on how God comes through us, his will through emotions. So many of us are, I missed it for years. I just missed it because my family didn't do it. The church didn't do it, and I just, it, you know, it just, I didn't do it. And let me tell you something. Love is a feeling thing. It's not a head thing. And we've got these churches, we're trying, we're trying to develop loving communities. Love is a feeling thing. We, we love not based on thoughts, we, we feel. And so this is, this is very much a part of growing into the image of Jesus, becoming whole people, becoming our broken humanity, becoming made whole in Jesus. And he died to set us free. And so we're not, we, we can be free of like what is happening. So I want to encourage you. I, when I started this journey in 96, I started to journal. I was so bad at feeling. I didn't do feelings. I, I didn't, my family, you, you, you know, you get a beating. What are you sad about? Shut up, you know, get back to work, you know. And well, you, you didn't feel. And, and, and so like for me to start to feel like it was like gigantic. So I, every morning as part of my quiet time, I began to journal these four questions like, what happened just today? Because I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, that person, you know, Bob insulted me. I mean, he, like, said this thing at the meeting that was like, it hurt me. But I wasn't even aware. It would just go right over me. But I was like, journal, wow, Bob said that about that my leadership was, was stinky in front of nine other people. That stung. Like, couldn't he have told me that in private? Did he have to say it in front of nine people and kind of, like, humiliate me? Do you follow me? But like, I, I would not even have been aware of that. Hey, I'm really, I really hurt. And I would like to feel it. And I said, well, God, what are you, how are you coming to me through that? Or like, you know, what? we had another 6 a.m. prayer meeting. I hated going, but I feel like I have to go. 
because I'm the pastor. And I started the meeting that I don't even want to go to anymore. And <laughs> I hate these meetings. Now, I'm really serious. I'm like, what do I feel about this? I hate the meeting. <laughs> and like, okay. That, that was like really big for me. I was like, what am I feeling about it? So I just would like journal. And every single day, like David, I'd say, I'm like David's writing a psalm before God, pouring out my soul. <laughs> and I had the muscles. And a lot of studies been done on the neurochemistry of the brain. I don't know if you're aware now. And that our brains are actually wired based on how we were raised. And that when you, and they've done, you know, they did all this work on it. When we start to feel, parts of our brain come alive. And we, our brains actually get rewired. And people who you think are totally non-feelers, they start doing this kind of work. They actually, their brain changes. They actually change. They begin, it becomes, you find out, I found out I was a super feeling person. I had no idea. Once I started to feel, the floodgates opened. Because I had a lot of stuffed pain. You'll hear my genogram tomorrow. I, I had tremendous pain growing up in my family. So I just shut down. I just shut it down. Because if you had an abuse, a painful childhood, you had to shut down to survive. And I was one of those people. And so I was afraid if I let myself feel, I could die. I'll, I'll go into a pit. I'll never come out. And I found out that if you let yourself feel, not only do you, you will not die, you'll come alive. Yes, you'll enter sadness. You'll enter fear, and you'll actually be able to enter anybody's world because you felt your own pain, your own life. You can, you can feel with anybody. So anyway, with that, let me pray and bless us, and thank you for a great night. We'll pick it up in the morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May you have a great night in this beautiful facility, and we'll see you tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for getting us started.